It is generally acknowledged that indigenous women occupy a role of either the demure Indian maiden, the carnal savage, the ugly old crone, or the wise old grandmother. Otherwise, they don't exist. Wait, what? Who decided this? No, 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 no. Let me tell you something about indigenous women. We exist outside of the boundaries others have tried to set for us. Where others tell us we don't belong, we thrive. When we're expected to fail, we succeed. We are fierce and we are sexy. Pillow Talks, Undressing Indigenous Bodies and Sexualities, is a podcast dedicated to the Indigenous female while being inclusive of trans women, those who are non-gender conforming, and two-spirited. Let's face it, we've been bringing sexy back since 1492. say hello. My name is Tashina Makokas and you are listening to the sixth episode of Pillow Talks, Undressing Indigenous Bodies and Sexualities. Welcome. This episode is co-hosted by my good friend Dom Marie Marchant, whom you may remember from the second episode of this podcast or know for her beautiful works of art and contributions to the community in Amiskwichiwaskahigan, otherwise known as Edmonton. About a couple months ago, Dom Marie asked me if she could invite her friend Jed Roberts, a former pro football player with the Edmonton Eskimos turned youth worker, to sit down with her and record a discussion about patriarchy, sexism, and his teachings to the youth he works with on rape culture. She felt that his teachings were important to share with as many people as possible, and that this podcast would be an effective tool for that. I was honored to help. So, without further ado... Here is Don Marie Marchand and Jed Roberts. Okay. Hi, this is Don Marie, and um, I want to introduce you to my friend Jed Roberts. He's a former Edmonton Eskimo. He played for the Eskimos from 1990 to 2002 and won the Grey Cup in 1993. Currently, he's working with youth. And I first met Jed in 2011 when I was the Circle of Courage coordinator for the Alberta Indigenous Games. Um, I was the lead on a mentorship team where we went as a group to give motivational talks to each team sport. Um, it was Dr. Martin Brokenleg, Jed, and an elder, either Philip Campio or Francis Whiskey Jack. His quick wit, easy laugh, and great stories made us quick friends. He's one of the people in my life that can and does put me in check. <laughs> he often um, makes me think long and hard about issues. And a while back, we had met up to talk about my son, and Jed spoke to me about rape culture and how to raise a young man who recognizes it. I'm honestly grateful for his willingness to speak about it and just be real and practical about it. So welcome, Jed. Great. Thank you. It's good to be here. I'm glad you asked me to come. Yeah. So tell us about yourself. Well, I think you did a pretty good job of explaining a lot of it. Um, I did play football for 13 years here in the community, but that's really a small part of like who I am overall as a person. Um, I was the son of a former CFL football player. Um, my late father, Jay Roberts, played for seven years with Ottawa, and that was pretty pretty big. And you know, when I was growing up as a kid, that's really all I wanted to do was play football. So that's kind of how I ended up. I was fortunate, you know, that genetics played a bit of a role. My dad 
passed down some of his physical attributes and um, I was able to parlay that into a career but my dad was always quick to let me know you know football is a fleeting thing you know and you really got to milk it you know not just the sport but just the things that happen on the off the field community relationships those types of things he, he planted it in my head that you know if you if you go out and you and you do a lot of these appearances, and his thing was don't get caught up in like a lot of, like a lot of guys do about how much you get paid to do appearances. He said do free ones, do as many as you can, you know, and then that will come back on you later in in your life if you choose to make that your home. And and that's what I did, and he was he was right, you know. After I got done playing, and it wasn't as difficult for me to find employment because my name was out there. I did so many appearances. I think I was averaging around two fifty to three hundred appearances a year. Well, I can't even think about doing that now, you know. I mean, getting a little bit older, I got two small kids at home. Um, so, I mean, being involved in the community and understanding that playing a professional sport, I wasn't really solving anything in that role. You know, it was more of an entertainment thing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I wanted to do something more meaningful. And so, I did a lot of volunteerism. Um, did was active with the Canadian Cancer Society. Did some work with the Royal Alexandria Women's Hospital. Uh, mini chair, uh, mini uh, Northern Lights mini uh, mini basketball mm-hmm. with the kids. They were playing yeah. wheelchair basketball. It was fun. You know, they never let me shoot because they <laughs> grab my wheelchair and be stuck in one place. So that wasn't much fun for me. But um, you know, I just got to do a lot of uh, cool things because mm-hmm. of the sport of football. You know, and and that was. Something that my dad did a really good job of implanting in my brain about, uh, you know, try to make as much of it as you can because uh, it's so fleeting and he was so right. You know, even though I played 13 years, it was gone in an eye, eye blink, you know. Yeah. So, and a lot of, the other part of it is that my dad was Aboriginal and I wasn't raised Aboriginal. I was, I lived with my mom and my two sisters. My dad and my mom split up when I was about five. So we didn't see much of each other when I was growing up. We would spend the summers together. And when my dad was in Ottawa or Texas or wherever else he was hanging his hat, we would go and, you know, spend a couple of months in the summertime. Um, sometimes we wouldn't go at all in the summer, depending on how stable he was at that time. So, um, you know, my mother was my number one role model growing up. You know, she, uh, when my mom and dad split up, my dad had, had a hard time with not being able to make a living as a football player. That became his identity, right? So he... You know, and I, I've always said that every professional athlete dies twice. You know, the first time when they're done playing, and then the second time when they leave this earth. Uh, and it's really hard for some people to deal with that. You know, so uh, my mom and dad, my mom didn't want to wait around on my dad to figure it out. So my mom took me and my two sisters, and we moved from Ottawa, Ontario, where I was born, to Oak Ridge, Tennessee, in the eastern part of the state of Tennessee in the U.S. And we moved in with my grandparents. And my mom went to night school and uh, put herself through. Uh, University of Tennessee. She became an accountant. She worked. Uh, she actually ended up. The guy that she was working for ended up having a nervous breakdown because they were closing that plant and they offered him the job in Colorado and he couldn't do it. So they offered it to her. And so then we moved to Colorado. And you know, I really saw that my mom went from nothing and then became something, and that was uh, powerful. I mean, there was no professional athlete coming to my school there was no famous you know movie stars or anything like that talking to me it was my mom you know yeah. so and that's that's why I, I um, 
It's funny that you asked me to do this today because tonight I've got to do the football one-on-one where we teach uh, women about the rules oh, of football yes, and stuff. Okay. So it's yes, kind I've of, seen kind that. of a two-for-one <laughs> today. So you're um, gonna I, have your estrogen overload. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go home and have a bubble bath tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, Okay, you're talk- you've, you've talked about your football, your path in mm-hmm. football, but now you, you're on a different path. You're working with young men, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how did that come about? Well, it's funny because I, along the same lines when I was talking about my, my dad um, encouraging me to become involved in the community, there was a, a number of other guys on the team in the 90s, the late 90s in particular, that were working at it for an agency called the Oak Hill Boys Ranch up in Bonacord, which is north of Edmonton on Highway mm-hmm. 28. Yeah. Um, one of them asked me, would you be interested in coming out? Because I was doing a lot of, I was uh, one of the founding members of the Edmonton Stay in School program. You guys have probably heard about that. You know, in the ball, they send players to every school, it seems like, in northern Alberta. And so we, we started that program with some government funding, I think it was in 92, 93, and then it's grown into what you see today. Um, and I, I, I used to talk to my, my, my ex-wife, used to talk about that, it would be really cool if I could do something like that for a living. And I couldn't really think of what that would be, and then uh, my buddy that was working at Oak Hill um, asked me to come out, and we were teammates, so I trusted him, and he, you know, I took his word for it that it would be a good experience. So I went out there and did some shadow shifts, and I really enjoyed it. So and then I just became a full-time youth worker, and it was just doing what I was actually already doing, was mentoring, you know, and I really enjoy that. And I, I really enjoy mentoring the people that are at risk, people that are a little bit off the beaten path, that are kind of going through the... The, the tough times, you know, mm-hmm. and I, I always say to the young people that I work with, you're going to be the most interesting person in the room. You know, you already <laughs> are, right? And, right? and so you have the big, you have the best story to tell out of everybody in the room. Yeah. And so I really, I gravitate toward that because, you know, I struggled a little bit when I struggled a lot growing up. I didn't learn how to talk until I was five and, you know, there were some concerns that maybe I was developmentally delayed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, it was a long, so I, I went the long way, like a lot of the kids that I work with yeah. now. So that's kind of, I really look at a lot of this as me kind of working with them, you know, where I was at at that point in time, you know. Yeah. So it's uh, it's gratifying. It's not something that, you know, I'm doing for entertainment purposes. It's it's more, it's not something I'm doing for somebody else. I'm doing this for me. And uh, if I help somebody, then it helps me, that type of thing. So, mm-hmm. so um, I think I should also let people know that you're, you're deaf. Yeah. Yeah, you're technically... Yeah, yeah. congenital nerve defect in both ears. It's called a bilateral uh, um, congenital nerve defect. And, and if people like to quantify it like or qualify it with, uh, well, what percentage could you hear if you had to put a percentage on it? Well, I could probably hear about 5% in my right ear and maybe 7 in the left. So it's, it's considered profound, which is one mm-hmm. level above deaf. Um, without these in, I don't hear anything, which is great. You know, when I need to sleep <laughs> or need to concentrate, yeah, you know, if I'm taking a test or whatever. I mean, I, I, I dwelled on a lot of the negative aspects about it when I was younger, but I'm, as I'm older, I'm really thankful. Yeah. You know, it's part of, it's a big part of who I am, right? right. So, yeah. So, okay. The day that we went for coffee and we were talking about rape culture and we didn't even really plan on. No, we just kind of started talking about we it. Were just, yeah. We were talking about Seth and, and I remember I had mentioned, you had said something about why did you update your status to in a relationship? And I told you that 
I had some cyber stalkers yeah. who were being very um, persistent and I had actually done this to deter them. Yeah. To get them it's to leave me alone. It's sad that you had to do that because that's the very definition of rape culture right there when you have to, and I've, I've done this actually with the young men I work with in my house because we talk about rape culture and what that means. And a lot of them are, um, it's such a, it's, it, when they hear the words rape culture, it's abstract to them. So they can't really understand what I'm getting at. So I, I'll use a lot of situations. I'll say, okay, so pretend like you're interested in a, in a, in someone, in a girl. And that girl is not going out with you, won't go out with you, is, you know, blowing you off. And, you know, you've tried all these different things, sending her flowers, you know, drawing her a picture, you know, sitting next to her, holding doors open for her. And for whatever reason, it's not working. And then one day you find out she has a boyfriend. So you stop. So what was the difference? She told you before, and I, I throw in the fact that she politely declined and said, no, you know, I'm not interested the only reason you stop is because she had a boyfriend. So what's the, why why is that? And so the kids will look at me and kind of give me a kind of a blank stare and I'll say it's because you're treating her like a possession, not like a person. Cuz you didn't respect her enough to stop when she asked you to stop. You only respected her enough to stop when she got a boyfriend. You respected the boyfriend. You respected the fact that she was with someone else. Mm-hmm. So and then a lot of kids I'll lose them on that, but you know, it's repetition, repetition, and reinforcing because we're talking about generations of this type of this these attitudes that have been ingrained into people. You know, I I, I don't talk about this stuff very often. It's, I'm kind of glad you you asked me because uh, I think like especially with patriarchy, you know, it's uh, that's something that came from Aristotle. I think from way back when. You know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you talk to it, and then and, you know the Europeans adopted that view. That view, my I find that. And particularly in, in, in uh, cultures or civilizations that are less developed, you know, you get a lot of that. Um, the, the premium placed on, you know, the strong, the, the stronger male, and the, you know, and, and gathering as much as you can, you know, that. I, th- I just don't think that at the end of the day, I think we're more egalitarian than that, you know. I think that we started out that way, and somewhere along the way, we got off the beaten track. You know, we got we kind of went off on a tangent there, and, and it just it just kind of makes me sad to see how we treat people, you know, based yeah. on those attitudes that were, that I don't think, it, I think it goes against our nature, really, to be honest with you. You know, people always try to throw the biology angle, well, men's brains are bigger than women's. So what? There's no research that suggests that that has anything to do with it. Guess what? I'm taller than you are. And this, my brain might be a little bit bigger than So you're saying I'm smarter than you are? You know? It doesn't work. You know? Yeah. So you, you get all those arguments. But you can only work with one kid at a time. You know? When you're talking about these types of things. And, and a lot of times, because of the kids I'm working with, a lot of them don't function that highly. So I have to be very basic. And mm-hmm. break it down into little increments, and that's how I do it. You get a situation where you're interested in someone, respect the fact that that person said no, and leave it at that. Shouldn't matter whether they're male or female. Right. It's just a respect thing. So how did um, how did patriarchy? Because this isn't like the first time where you and I have actually um, conversed, or where you've actually said, "Well, you know, Don, this is what's happening." Mm-hmm. You, you know, you've come alongside me a few times over the last few years and, and, and kind of pushed me to see things in a different way. Yeah. Um, 
a lot of that is like for me it's internalized stuff and I'm starting to recognize my crap now thanks to you but you're really passionate about about mentoring young men Mm -hmm. into recognizing their own behaviors up towards women where did that come from like what's your story around that where did it start to really become something that was important to you uh i think it was just out of um recognition for how strong my mom and my grandmother um i come from a family where education is very important and um if you want to talk about strong females you know my great-grandmother graduated from university think about that and my grandmother as well and my mother everybody in my family and so education is a big thing and I think an education is a big piece of it and so I used to listen to my mother talk about you know making less than the guy that she had been working for before and she couldn't figure out why it wasn't because he was smarter than she was it wasn't because she'd been he'd been there longer than they were there the same amount of time so uh, that really opened my eyes. And so, um, you know, being a young man and thinking about things like that, I don't think a lot of young men do that. I don't think they think about that. And they think, and when I would try to talk to my friends about it, they kind of look at me and blow me off and, you know, say, oh, just, that's just the way it is, man, you know. But it directly impacted us, mm-hmm. especially economically, because we weren't making as much as we would be otherwise, you know. Um, so I think that because personally, it affected me personally, now that I'm in a role where I can be mentored, mentored to some young men, I can have an actual impact on some of their attitudes. Whether they take it in or not is on them. It's not up to me. All I can do is throw it out there, and if they pick it up, that's on them. But that's how I view it. I, I just look at it as, I mean, that's my reality. I can't speak for anyone else. You know, I have, I'm friends with some people that don't even, that we were polar, polar opposites, but we enjoy other things. We have other things in common, so we leave that out. Yeah. But, um, that's why I'm passionate about it because I look at it from from, an, from my perspective growing up you know if things had been different things could have been better you know mm-hmm. um, I think everything's subjective you know when you're looking at it my reality is different from yours you know we, but I appreciate the fact that you're different from me and I really enjoy talking to you because like you say every time you talk I think about things and I consider them and I go wow I didn't even think about it that way <laughs> You know, and then when you, because when you told me that day, yeah, I had to change my relationship status because everybody's on Facebook, everybody's on, you know, some sort of platform nowadays, it seems like, on the internet. Um, it's, it's, it's sad that you had to do that, you know, really is, because you should be able to just be who you are and not have to worry about it. Yeah. But I think a lot of people get on the internet and they're, they, they like, they like that anonymity and they like the power that they have to be able to jab, jab, jab. I can give you a little story. I used to mess around with my sisters a lot because I was the oldest and I was kind of a, an idiot sometimes. But uh, my sister would come to the table wearing a certain dress and I knew she liked it, but all I had to do was say, hey, Kim, you're not wearing that today, are you? And she'd go, why? What's wrong with it? Nothing. And I'd go back to eating my cereal. And she'd turn around and change her outfit, right? But that's all it takes is one comment, right? And that's face-to-face. But now you've got all these people commenting on YouTube videos, commenting on pictures and making little comments. And that's what, for whatever reason, people get joy out of that. I don't understand it. I don't understand the, the, there's there's an entire culture right now online where people are taking shots left and right. And you really see the misogyny on there, especially like we're talking about the first female coach in the NFL, just got hired yesterday by the Phoenix Cardinals. And 
you should see the beating she's taking on there, you know, and for no other reason than because she's a woman, you know. She has a PhD in psychology. Um, there's five top level I quoted, I can't remember, Mike Leach, one of them. In Arkansas, there's five male head coaches in NCAA top level who never played college football. Now, she can do it having played at the highest level in her, for women's football, playing representing the U.S. and the world. Why can't she, you know? Yeah. Like, she's played higher level than they have. And you could argue, well, because she's a woman, she was playing against other women. I don't want to hear that. She played against men, too. Yeah. And she did quite well. I just think that people get caught up, and it's just it's too simple. Like, people think, look at, I don't understand it, you know? She, she'll be fine. She just She's going to have a, like... Like Jackie Robinson did when he broke in with, you know, and there was no other reason other than he was black, you know, which was ridiculous. Yeah. But the attitudes, the ingrained attitudes that passed on from one general generation to the gen that's a lot to fight. That's a lot to go up against. And so kudos to her for being in the right place at the right time. So yeah. I'm going to be watching that one pretty closely. But I think it's about time. I mean, it's 2015, man. What's the holdup, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so... um Earlier on, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit, and you were talking about some of the the um, areas that you felt were the man's domain. These are the last bastions of yeah. of places where you know these are the man caves and stuff like that, um, and these are places where um, patriarchy just abounds. Yeah. Um, can you give me your opinion on how somebody like my son who loves, loves sports, has no way about around it, he's going to be in those places. How do you have a practical way of, of guiding a young man who really just wants to check out of that behavior? Yeah. That's a tough one because everybody wants to fit in, you know. Um, you know, talking about the Michael Sam thing in Montreal where he was in the NFL and you know because he's openly gay and and so like that like you're right the locker room is the last bastion of that male dominated you know uh male privilege area you know I remember in uh, the early 90s when I was came in with the Eskimos um Edmonton was a bit of a front runner in terms of like they had a female reporter named Lisa Miller Okay, who yeah, used to come in all the time. I, actually, she was, I really liked her. You know, we used to talk to her a lot because I saw what she was kind of going up against. And again, I'm going to go back to my mom. You know, I was thinking about like, what if that was my mom? You know, like what, how would that? So I always made an extra effort to be kind to her and, you know, ask if she needed anything. And, but but at the same time, not treat her like any, you know, just treat her like I would anybody else. I was I'm pretty polite to everybody for the most part. But um, but I used to watch her pretty closely, and I remember watching the guys and the way they would behave, and, you know, they would, like, pull their towels off on purpose, and, you know, just to make her uncomfortable. There would be the odd guy that would go and stand really closely behind her, and, you know, it's, I just, why? Yeah. No other reason than to just make her feel uncomfortable. And what it boils down to is power. It's yeah. about power, and it's about, in that moment, you know, putting on a show for the other guys to show that you're, you know, you're... Your level of you know coolness is up here. I don't really understand it. I didn't understand it then. But as far as talking to Seth or a young man going into that situation, I would be upfront about being you know understand that that is the last bastion of that type of you know that's the area where a lot of guys feel pretty 
you know, they can open up and be, we're talking about bullying. Like that's another thing. It's all about power, really. Yeah. You know, when you're, when you're talking well, about bullying. Well, it's the patriarchy yeah. kind yeah. of like about power and control yeah. anyway. Yeah, it is. And um, keeping everyone in their place, you know, and everybody has a role. And uh, fundamentally, I think in that, it's it's almost tribal the way it is. When you go in there, you got your click over here. You know, when I first came to the Eskimos, it was the African-Americans on one side of the room and the, you know, the the white Canadians on the left side. And so it was really like the peas and carrots weren't mixing. And I had come up from the U.S. where I'd grown in, I'd grown up in neighborhoods in, in Tennessee, which were, we had a lot of African-American kids. And um, I didn't understand that. That wasn't something I could relate to. So I hung out. And everybody on the defense was African-American except for me. At one point, I was the only person that wasn't of color. Um, and so it was weird. I couldn't understand. But I think people do think do what they're most comfortable with. And I think that if they grew up that way, they'll, they'll kind of revert back to their their uh, what do they call their default settings right where you know you're you're gonna you're just gonna do whatever you're comfortable with right you know um i was comfortable just talking to everybody so i think at the first at the beginning when i came in with the eskimos i got some some looks because i would i didn't really care i could be sitting with gizmo williams trading jokes one minute then the next minute i'm over there with danny bass who's our hall of fame middle linebacker from michigan state you know and talking about coverages and all that so I didn't want. I want to relegate myself to one group. I wanted to be able to meet everybody because my dad used to say to me and my mom both said, "If you restrict yourself to one clique, you're going to miss out on the cool things that everybody else has to to offer." It's difficult to do that in high school. It's difficult to do that in college. In some respects, um, a lot of people will force you to choose. And I think in that locker room setting, sometimes people do that there too. They'll, they'll force you to choose. Well, you, if you if you're not with us, you're against us. Well, why can't I be with both of you? You know, why can't I be in touch with my feminine side, but yet be one of the guys, right? And I think it's easier to do that now than it yeah. was, you know, twenty twenty five years ago. So when Lisa Miller was in there doing her thing and just trying to do her job, you know, and the Eskimos were one of the first franchises, I think, in. North America, really, to open up their dressing room to a female reporter. And I thought that was pretty cool, the Eskimos, to do that. Very progressive. Um, but it, I saw how hard it was for her. And I felt for her. You know? And I, I've never actually had that conversation with her. I hope I get to run, run into her one day and talk to her about it. Because I watched it very closely. And I don't know if anybody else in the room is really paying attention. But right. I've thought about it a lot over the years. So you were talking about... Um that whole idea of putting people in their place and keeping them in their place. Mm -hmm. um, I was told a story a while back um, about um, murdered and in, murdered and missing Indigenous women, and the story that they that was told to me was that a lot of times the women that go missing and murdered are not necessarily are damsels in distress. They're actually, most of the time, even if they're like inner city people right. or they're street women, they're the strong women. Yeah. They're the ones that stand up and speak out. And these are the ones that are targeted. And that these are the ones that find themselves in trouble, right? Uh, the women who are kind of like the damsels in distress have a tendency to have men who don't mind rescuing them. Yeah. But a strong woman will be almost constantly pushed, you know. Yeah. Or, in my case, because I've survived three sexual assaults in mm -hmm. my life. In my case, it's because I was a strong woman and the man was trying to put me in my place so that the, I knew 
that I was nothing. Um, yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, so I, I found it really interesting that you even brought that up yeah. because it totally reminds me of the fact that, you know, why are we doing this? Why are we putting people in their place? And why can't we kind of expand where people, where women are allowed to be placed? Mm -hmm. Well, I think you'd have to reframe the narrative, you know, because we're talking about generational, this is just, these are attitudes that have been handed down from one generation to the next, yeah. going all the way back to the Greeks, you know, the Aristotle, you know, the women are best just being anonymous at home, you know, don't speak up. Don't don't cause a ruckus, you know. Just take care of the little ones, and uh, you know that's a tough one. Um, I always talk to when I'm working with the young people. I talk about uh, you know when we're talking about sexual assaults. It's never it's never the word sex should really even be in there. The only reason the word sex is in there because there is contact with the genital organs. It's not about sex. It's about power, and it's about like you said subjugating that person and taking away something that's sacrosanct from that that individual, whether it's the feeling, the right to privacy, the right to well-being, the right to, you know, peace of mind, really. And that's that's like, when you're in that situation, yeah, don't get me started on that one. Because the, the, the kids I work with right now, we talk about uh, reality. And a lot of there's a lot of things out there that are social constructs like pornography. We talk about that. We talk about well, when you order a pizza, this is not going to happen. You know, you that's on there because people have active fantasy lives, and you know, and, and the internet's taken it and run with it. You know, and and I, you know, 25 years ago, you had to go to the store, buy a magazine, open it up, and then. You know, you, you let your imagination run wild. Now, all you have to do is sit down at the computer, boom, five seconds, you're off to the races. And you can't unsee those things. And so we're talking, it's almost propagating out of control now, these attitudes, because people are seeing things that can't be unseen. People are hearing things on, you know, when you're on the line. All of that is so readily accessible now and so easy to access. So even if you put filters in your computer, all they have to do is go to their friend's house and they see that. So... You're up against a lot. So the attitude, it seems like it's getting worse instead of getting better. Or you could argue that, well, we have more access to technology, so we're seeing a lot more than we ever used to because it used to be you'd be confined by geography. Whatever you'd, you, you would hear about whatever happened in that particular area, you wouldn't be you know, privy to what was happening in China or South of, so we're all connected. So we're more connected now than we've ever been. So, I mean, it could be a little bit of both. You know, we're seeing a lot more um, of it because we're connected and also I think we've got a lot more access to it and I think um, the biggest lesson I try to teach the kids I work with is if you can do the right thing when nobody's around you're in good shape you know but if, as soon as somebody leaves the room and you're picking up the computer and you know mm -hmm. then you've got some problems you've got some issues maybe we should talk about that you know? yeah yeah I have another friend uh, who works with youth and uh his, uh, I was sitting with them and we were, I was with these two young men and my friend and the three of us were talking about art and we were talking about um, respecting women and stuff mm -hmm. like that and one of them got a text mes message and his <laughs> iPhone screen lit up. It wasn't, right? a, wasn't a picture of a body part, was it? Oh yes, it was. <laughs> 
you know? Oh, man. <laughs> and, and so anyways, he's looking at me, and he flips his phone over, and I told him, I said, you know, that's, you know I, I understand why you're doing that, but the fact that you feel shame when I'm talking to you yeah. about respecting women that should be that should tell you something yeah. about what you're doing. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I'd hate to be that guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, the other thing I wanted to talk to you about was um, like a little bit about um, what do you think is healthy um, when it comes to you're 47 now, mm -hmm. right? Don't remind um, me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 44. I'm yeah. cool with it. Um, but what do you think now that you've okay, you've grown from from being this uber jock and yeah, and you know going through all of that life, and now you're in your 40s. You're mm -hmm. and you're pretty much you've got two young guys at home. Like yeah, I've got five total though. Yeah, you've got five. And that's altered my perception and my outlook on things. You know. Yeah. I think having children for anybody is like, wow, you know. And I think some people come around to it later than others. You know, my first brood of, of kids with my ex-wife, you know, we had our first, we had a daughter in 91. Uh, our second uh, child was born in 94, um, Dakota. And then uh, we had our third child, Zoe, in 2000. And then the marriage didn't work out, you know, because I am who I am and she's who, he is, who she is, right? And then... Uh, I met my wife now, and we've had two boys together. And um, it's funny because I, I see things coming in cycles, and I see patterns. And I think when you get older, you start to you start to recognize them coming, right? You start to see these things develop, and you sort of uh, it, it. It really is true, you know. You're gonna get you're gonna go through those same cycles until you learn what you need to learn, and then you'll you'll move on. And mm -hmm. so for me, um, having kids was something that was really difficult for me because I didn't. I don't think I was mature enough to... Well, I know I wasn't mature enough because obviously it didn't work out, but um, I came around to it later. You know, there's a big age difference between me and my uh, wife right now. I'm 47 and she's 33. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think in a lot of ways that's beneficial because um, she's very stable, settled, um, very optimistic, very positive. Uh, has a real good energy about her, you know. She's she's a great person, very funny, smart. Um, Just as passionate for youth. Yeah, and yeah, she's you know she's a social worker. Huge props for his wife. Yeah, huge props awesome. for his wife. You know, and and I think that you know attitude has so much to do with it, right? And for me, I was just struggling trying to find my way, and and, and I think it was too, I was very self centered, egocentric, and like a lot of young people are, you know, narcissistic and. So I had a lot of growing to do, and then so when the marriage didn't work out, I, I, I did a lot of self-reflection. So what did I do wrong? What did I do? You know, I wasn't looking to blame anybody. It wasn't, you know, about blame. It was more about what do I need to learn and take away from this situation. So tried to make some corrections and some changes, and, you know, when you get to be 40s, you know, you start to make those. You, you, I think anybody does that. I mean, I, I'll, I'll own my midlife crisis. You know, I, I look back and I thought, well, what am I doing? Am I what am I doing in my life that's meaningful, and what am I doing in my life that's not? So I tried to eliminate a lot of those not so meaningful relationships and not so meaningful activities, and then uh, tried to pick up some better habits, you know, and better friendships and more meaningful friendships. And um, having kids this time around, I'm able to slow down. 
and take that extra time, you know, as fundamental and basic as, you know, my son or one of them or both of them have a blow up in this door, I'll stop. I will just, you know, stand there and we'll do some either it's planned ignore or, you know, if I'm able to, you know, or we'll just say, hey, listen, we're going to stop when everybody's ready to go. Then we'll go instead of trying to charge headlong through the day, you know, and I think a lot of casualties emerge because of that mindset. We've got to get everything done. Go, 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 go. What's the rush? You know, slow mm -hmm. down. And I think that's one of the big lessons I've learned. And, and I like being 47. I like being this age. I, I think, you know, being 22 and having a young body and, you know, not feeling any pain and stuff like that, that's pretty cool. But I don't think I'd go back and do that anymore. You know, it's, I didn't like not knowing. You know, I like knowing. I like being able to uh, have real conversations with people. And um, being in that setting, I'll take you back to the locker room setting. It wasn't always the best, most comfortable place for me. You know, I didn't feel like myself in a lot of cases. You know, um, being in touch with your feminine side isn't exactly encouraged in that particular arena. Um, having said that, I've always been a pretty strong personality, so I've always been who I am and haven't really made any apologies about it. Um, so I was able to get away with it. But there's a lot of people that just can't make that adjustment, and so they they try to be who they're not. And I think, you know, for me, when I was younger, I did do a lot of that. I, when I was in high school, you know, I'll be the first to admit that I did have some pretty misogynistic attitudes about, you know, but I was just trying to go with the flow, you know, and I, and I regret that, you know. I, I, if I could go back and change it, I would, but, you know, I can't. So all I can do is focus on the now. And who, the kids I'm working with now are the benefits of me. They're benefiting from my my retrospect, retrospective look at, you know, what was going on when I was younger and, and trying to help them through a very, very uh, mind, you know, like a minefield, right? So you gotta, you gotta tread carefully because there's a lot of uh, things out there that will trip you up. Uh, a lot of attitudes that are that are pretty rotten, you know. And I think at the end of the day, and I say this to the kids I work with, the real, the only true disability in life is a bad attitude, you know. Um, that can go along with so many different things. I, I don't think that anybody's better than anybody. You know, I think everybody should just get along and respect each other and celebrate the differences, you know. Um, mm -hmm. If everybody were all the same, it'd be pretty boring. Yeah. You know? And I don't like I don't like that. I don't like going someplace where everything's bland and vanilla and you know, I like I like I like colorful people. I like I like people that have opinions. I like people that aren't afraid to share them. I like the people that like to speak up and be heard and say, you know, like what's on my mind, what's on your mind, you know, and I think that touches on what you were talking about. The females that are working the streets, a lot of those women are there because they're willing to make those sacrifices to make whatever changes they need or they feel like maybe that's the that's the way. Uh, I don't think a lot of those, and people look at those women, especially the, the sex trade workers, they look at them as victims. And I don't think they're always victims. I think a lot of them just feel like, you know what, that's, that's just what I'm going to do, you know, and that's just the way I'm going to survive. And I think that you know, they're trying to take their lives into their own hands and try to make things better. And some of them do suffer from, from you know, the, the risk factors, you know, alcohol and the drugs and stuff like that. But they're people, you know. And um, the ones that speak up are often the ones that are squashed down, right, by whatever the powers may be, whether it's government or, you know, people in their lives, you know, um, abusive spouses or people that have felt threatened by their power. Um, I've always enjoyed spending time with strong women, you know, because I feel like I have. A, they teach me more 
than the people that just are quiet and don't offer up opinions. You know, I don't like spending time with people who are quiet and won't tell me how they feel about something. You know, I'd, mm-hmm. I'd like to hear what your opinion is. You know, and that's something that I really appreciate about you in particular. So, if you could give any advice to any young women, don't be afraid to share your opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Well, can you close this up by giving some? And you know what? Here's here's the truth. The truth is that some men, even when they get to your age, you know, and older, they're still trapped in that mindset. That m- mindset of keep the woman in the house, keep the woman behind me. Would you have advice for those men? Because I think they need to hear it coming from a yeah. man. Oh man, I've got. I don't want to. You know, I, I I don't even know where to start. I, I'll go back to uh, the the big the big eye opening one for me was when I first started to kind of think it was like the. You know how when you're sometimes you're behind like a, a a barrier or something, and then all of a sudden part of it opens up and you realize there's something about back there. Mm-hmm. The first sort of crack or tear in the fabric of whatever it was that was covering my eyes was when I did a paper in college, and it was uh, I think I talked to you about this. It was uh, for a feminine perspective. By the way, I don't identify myself as a feminist. I identify myself as anti-sexist. Okay. <laughs> um, it was a paper. It was for feminist perspectives class, and. Um, I did a paper that compared foot binding to Western women wearing high heels. Why? Because uh, whose whose idea? Who's what? What are we promoting here? Like who's who decided that that was attractive? Yeah. Is it comfortable for yeah. women to wear the high heels shoes? Is it good for your feet? Is it functional? Is it you know what I mean? These are questions, and I didn't. I never really thought about it that way, right? Well, until I did that paper, I was like. And then I, because I remember thinking, man, that's barbaric. I can't believe they do that over there, man, that foot binding. Like, who in their right mind would do that? <laughs> and then I took a look around, and I was like, wait a minute. Why are these women wearing these six-inch spike heels? Who's that? Who's benefiting from that, you know? Is that, like, does, if, hey, listen, if it makes you feel attractive, go ahead. Knock yourself out. But what's the bigger picture here? You know what I mean? Um and I think sometimes my wife gets mad at me, you know, because I'll say to her, listen, are those functional shoes? Like, are you going to be okay? <laughs> and she's like, will you just leave me alone? Like, I like them and they make me feel okay. That's fine. As long as you, you know, I, and so she, <laughs> she gets really upset with me because I do that. But at the same time, at the end of the night when she's got blisters on her feet and she's, and I'll say, well, and she'll say, don't even say it. Don't even say that, you know, you told me so because I had fun and that's all that matters, you know, but I guess to wrap it up, for the younger men, um, you know, and we talked about young people sometimes, I think in males in particular, they tend to compartmentalize and, and feel like they can't be the same guy with their significant other or with their female friends that they are with their own friends. Listen, if you can't be yourself all all the time, you're you're in for a lot of heartache because I did that and I can speak from personal experience because I did that. I used to compartmentalize and I felt like, and I almost went crazy because I couldn't look myself in the eye and I started turning into someone I wasn't and I didn't really know where I was and I kind of got so far away from who I was when I was younger. I turned into this guy that I thought everybody wanted me to be that it just almost drove me crazy. So, and I have no shame, I have no qualms about admitting that I went to therapy and I talked to people about it because We'll go back to when I got done playing football. It was a very difficult change. It was a very difficult adjustment. My grandfather passed away. I moved. So we're talking like boom, boom, boom. 
career change, a death in the family. And, uh, you know, it was, it was difficult. So, and I came back to just make it simple. Just do something that makes you happy and just be who you want to be, you know, and don't try to be this idea of who you think, you know, or who somebody told you, okay, this is what a man should be. Do what your heart tells you to do, you know, be yourself. If you can't be yourself around everybody, about the people you love. I mean, yeah, you sometimes you have to, I like to put it this way. Everybody gives you their A side. You remember when you used to watch, listen mm-hmm. to the LPs and stuff like that? Everybody's all about the A side. You know, this is the A side. <laughs> this is the good song, right? But yeah. the B side is there too, right? So if you can't show people your B side, you can show your B side to the people that you're with, especially your significant others. And uh, you have to understand too, there's two, it's a partnership and people talk about relationships and you know what? It's 50-50. It's not 50-50. It's never 50-50, really. It's always 60-40, 70-30, 80-20, and then it'll, it'll, grow, it'll go back and forth. It's like an elastic band, right? And I think in those relationships where, well, I'm going to make the money. I'm the man. I'm going to make the money. You stay home and you raise the kids. Well, that's that's 80 for the woman, and that's 20 for the man. And that's, you know, I think a man could argue, well, I'm working, and I'm working out on the rigs, and I'm doing physical labor all day. All, the last thing I want to do is chase my kids at home when I get at home. Get home, You know, those are probably some discussions you should have with that person before you start having kids, right? Because in a lot of ways, am I looking outside, on the outside in? That doesn't seem fair. And um, I think it's a partnership. And that's one of the biggest adjustments I had to make um, in my own life. You know, when I first had my first group of kids, I was very much of that, you know what? I'm going to let my wife take care of that and I'm going to go do my thing and that's one of the major contributing factors to our relationship, to the demise of our relationship, unfortunately. So uh, now that I'm able to slow down and see things, you know, and um, it really is a partnership with my wife and I. You know, I, I've got actually now in the summertime, I've got my two boys. I get up in the morning, we go to the gym and we spend some time together and then we get a sitter for about two hours and then my mom, well, there's a 40 inch slip. Then my wife comes home and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My wife will come home for work and then she'll take them and go to the gym with them as well. So, I mean, it's a partnership, but there's going to be some times when I'm going to be doing more of it. There's going to be times when she's doing more of it. But uh, I think at the end of the day, you know, you've got to understand if you can't be yourself with who you're with and you're only showing the person you're with a certain side, that's that's a big red flag for me. You know, and I think that that's a lot of that intergenerational stuff that's passed down. You've got to be this, you know, person. You can do that for your kids because you don't want to be your kid's buddy. You want to be your kid's parent. But when you're with your significant other, you should be you. You know, and I think that sometimes those lines get blurred. You know, I've got to be the the man. There's lots of different definitions for what a man is. And I think that a lot of people have it skewed. You know, a man can be a lot of different things. A man can take go home after, you know, talking about feminism and then doing your football one-on-one and then having a bubble bath. I own it, you know. <laughs> you know, you can you can be both. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Jed. Thank you so much for coming and, you know, giving us things to think about. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Man, I haven't talked this much in a long time, so it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you to Don Marie and Jed. And thank you for listening to this episode of Pillow Talks, Undressing Indigenous Bodies and Sexualities. You can follow Don Marie Marchand and Jed Roberts on Twitter. Her handle is at createdawn. That's at C-R-E-E-8-D-A-W-N. And his handle is JedRock43. At J-E-D-R-O-C-K-4-3. 
You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is IndigenousPT. You can find us on SoundCloud as well. Just look for the Pillow Talks podcast. And finally, you can email me at indigenouspillowtalks at gmail.com. Hi, hi for listening. We'll catch you next time.